We're turning to God's word for our scripture reading this morning. There it is on the screen. Uh, Mark chapter 4 and at verse 26. It's page 1006 if you're using the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces corn, first the stalk, then the ear, then the full kernel in the ear. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerizines. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legions of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. They were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. 
As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him. While he was by the lake, one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you asked, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talithai, kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. I think I'll skip the hymn and hand to David rather than put him under pressure with time. Thanks, David. Morning, everyone. Thank you, Roy. Uh, after a, a few b- weeks' break, we're back in Mark's Gospel, and so far we have looked at 19 incidents out of the 70-plus that occur, and this the shortest of the four Gospels. And when I say we've, we've looked at 19 incidents, I think it's fair to say we've just touched on 19 incidents, because we are only skimming the surface. And I realize there is a real danger in doing that with God's words, but our intention is clear. It's to saturate our minds with the stories of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, 
the example of Jesus because we hope and we actually believe that every contact we have with Jesus, this unique God-man, leaves a trace of him in us, on us, and with us. So with your Bibles still open, let's begin our journey with the 20th incident. And what we find is Jesus telling stories, actually parables, which four weeks ago we defined as mini-dramas using picture language. And there are two parables here, both about seeds. The first one's about a growing seed. The second one is about a mustard seed. Now, the growing seed parable is unique to Mark. It's not recorded in any of the other Gospels. And it follows hot in the heels of the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 3. And therefore, the seed that gets scattered here is generally thought to be the word of God. If you have a look at verse 13 of chapter 3, it reads, The farmer sows the word. Now, whenever a seed gets into soil, we enter the realms of mystery. Look at how Jesus put it in this key phrase, which is found in verse 27 of chapter 4. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he, the farmer, does not know how. So the farmer sows, but he doesn't fully comprehend all that happens next. And two millennia later, we may have a little more knowledge about how seeds grow. But the mystery of the growth process still puzzles farmers and scientists today. And I just love that thought whenever you connect it to God's word. You see, our our role is to speak this. It's to sow it. It's to share it. It's to teach it. It's to preach it. Our role is to pray that the hearts and minds of those who walk in here, the hearts and minds of our friends, and our families, that they are prepared to receive this sown word. But then our role is to trust God, that he will somehow mysteriously cause his word to grow in human soil. Paul put it like this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And that's a mystery I'm willing to embrace and celebrate. We can't explain it. We shouldn't try to explain it. We just allow God to do what God does best. One of the most uh, interesting phrases I read about seeds during the week was this, that in a seed lies the fierce force of life. And you know, we believe that in God's word lies the fierce force of life. So let's scatter it, let's water it, let's try to create the right conditions for it to grow, but let's trust God to do the rest. I struggle whenever people seem to have it all sorted. I think we just need to leave a whole lot more to mystery. Jesus begins his uh, next parable with a question. He says, what is the kingdom of God like? And the answer he gives is is probably not the answer they were expecting. He says it's like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed you can plant in the ground. It's about two millimeters in diameter. But as with so much of what Jesus said, you've got to hear him out, and you've got to avoid jumping in too early with your own conclusions. A mustard seed may be small, it's vulnerable, it's apparently insignificant, profoundly powerless, 
But pay close attention to what it becomes. Jesus says it becomes one of the biggest of all the garden plants, even sometimes described as a tree. And back in chapter 1, one of the first recorded statements of Jesus confirmed that the kingdom of God was near. And although this kingdom appeared to begin small, the rapid expansion that would take place was and still is completely undeniable. The kingdom of God may have found its beginnings in a small place. It may have found its beginnings even in perceived weakness. But the transformational impact of that kingdom on literally billions of people in the past 2,000 years has been phenomenal. And we here this morning are living proof of that. And at another level, this parable acts as a vivid reminder that small is big. Something deceptively tiny in the hands of Almighty God has the potential to make a huge impact. And I don't think I'm taking this too far by comparing this to how many of us feel most of the time. We feel small. And we feel insignificant. And we feel vulnerable. And we feel powerless. And yet our potential, every single one of us sitting in this room this morning, our potential for greatness with God and because of God is incredible. I love this thought from Michelle Walker. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've obviously never been in a room with a mosquito. Do you know the kingdom of God may be small and you may feel small, but with God, small is big. Now the parabolic teaching is over for the time being and Jesus is back in the road again and he ends the day in a boat And in this next incident, what we come across is an amazing clash between the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. He's about to perform his first nature miracle as recorded by Mark in calming the storm. But for now, Jesus is shattered. He's completely exhausted. He needs to crash out. And so we find Jesus curled up in the stern of a boat, fast asleep on a cushion. Now before we move on too quickly... Let me highlight something I've never realised before. I've never noticed before. Look at the end of verse 36. It says there were also other boats with him. Now it's only Mark that adds that detail. It's only Mark that includes that piece of information. I've always tended to imagine just one solitary boat in the middle of a lake being threatened by an impending storm and yet it seems there were other boats in the lake facing destruction on that day as well. Now Jesus was physically present in just one boat but the benefits of his presence in the wider world at that moment were tangible. Not only were his disciples spared but many others lived to fish another day. And I'm not entirely sure where to go with this. If anywhere. But it seems to confirm the fact that the presence of Jesus in our world today still offers hope to all Christians and non-Christian who find themselves caught up in the storms and the trials and the difficulties of life. Back to the story, because this is clearly a life or death situation. For some seasoned fishermen to actually say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown, implies the strength and the seriousness of this storm. And even though their experience to date revealed that Jesus can do almost anything. In fact, he can do some extraordinary things like he can drive out evil spirits. 
He can heal sick mother-in-laws. He can remove leprosy with a touch. He can cause a paralytic to walk. He can restore a shriveled hand. The fact is that in the heat of a crisis, when panic sets in, the disciples wonder, do you know something, Jesus? Do you actually care? And that sounds disturbingly familiar. Do you know there have been numerous occasions in my own life when I have experienced God at work. I've seen situations changed. I've seen lives transformed. I've seen circumstances altered. And yet there are times, far too many times, whenever another problem, another challenge, another difficulty crashes into my life or into the life of someone close to me, near to me, dear to me, and I stand back and I wonder, Jesus, do you really care here? And God, can you actually do much given the mess I'm staring at? And the thing is, I don't feel that I'm alone in that. And therefore, I totally understand the disciples' sentiments at this moment. And Jesus gets up and he speaks three words. And the whole scene changes. And the three words are quiet, be still. And the course of nature is abruptly disrupted before their very eyes. And verse 39 says, it all goes completely calm. And then Jesus asks two unfair questions. At least they seem unfair to me. Why are you so afraid? And do you still have no faith? And those are two questions that just keep cropping up in my own Christian life and Christian experience. And I wonder how many people are here this morning or maybe not here this morning. And you're in the midst of what feels like a storm. And you're afraid of what's happening. And you're scared of what might happen next. And in terms of your faith, that feels virtually non-existent. And therefore, these two questions are important and they're relevant, but actually they grate on you a little as Jesus asks them. Fear and difficulty that believing that Jesus can bring peace to my troubled heart, rest to my weary soul, transformation to my darkest night, All those feelings may be understandable, but I've got to challenge those thoughts as a Christian. I've got to question them. I've got to ask myself, David, why are you so afraid? Why do you still, time and time again, seem to have no faith? And I'm not trying to make us feel worse this morning but I do think that Jesus calls us deeper and calls us higher storms are inevitable we all know that but what is critical is how I react how I respond to the storms of life I want to develop I want to know a more robust faith in God but I'm still learning and that's okay And the disciples had lots to learn, and we all do. In the words of Thomas Glover, every follower of Christ learns, but they never stop learning. They grow, but they never stop growing. They get stronger, but they're never strong enough. They follow closely, but never closely enough. And so the believer ever strives to reach that place of perfect trust. And the emphasis is on ever strives. And as we strive to reach that place of perfect trust... We know that Jesus accompanies us throughout our journey. It might seem like he's asleep. It might feel like Jesus doesn't care at times. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because in his infamous or famous final words he said, Surely I am with you always.
to the very end of the age. Then we're into chapter 5. That's a quarter of Mark covered. The next incident is, uh, is relatively horrific to say the least. And although Mark's gospel is the shortest, his record of this particular incident is the longest and the most detailed as compared to Matthew and Luke's. Because Jesus gets out of his boat and he's approached by a human wreck of a man. A man who's lived in isolation and seclusion, away from society and people in general. A man who cuts himself. One of the first records of self-harm. man cuts himself and he is possessed by and he's indwelt by and he's controlled by an evil spirit. And that evil spirit is called legion. It's interesting that evil spirits have names. And although he is thought to be beyond human help, he wasn't beyond God's help. And that's a principle worth bearing in mind. Because although he was despised, he was rejected, he was feared, he was considered unlovable, God had a radically different perspective, and he still does. And whenever this man sees Jesus from a distance, he runs and he falls on his knees in front of Jesus. And what's worth noting about the rest of this chapter is that every other key character does exactly the same. Look at verse 22. Jarius, a very different man, falls at the feet of Jesus. Verse 33, an unnamed woman falls at the feet of Jesus. Three people fall, three lives dramatically transformed. You see, whenever you bow in submission and in reverence and in recognition of who Jesus is, your life will never be the same again. But if you choose to stay where you are at a distance, if you choose to remain on your feet, then you'll be disconnected from the relationship you were created to enjoy. Back to the Gerizim hillside. Legion is absolutely clear on who stands in front of this man. So he says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Is what he says. Because he knows what's coming next. He knows that Jesus will cast him out. And so Legion asks for a relocation. And as the text says, legion means many. And so there were a number of evil spirits living in this demented individual. And so they asked Jesus, Jesus, can we go and take up residence and live within 2,000 pigs? Animal demon possession. Jesus obliges, but although they were given relocation, they probably hadn't banked on what would happen next. Because no sooner had they set up home in this herd of swine than they find themselves hurtling off a steep bank into a lake where the pigs drown. And I just love this next bit. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and then probably made their way to the job market. Because how do you explain that one to your employer? Do you know when people turn up at the scene... They're obviously confronted by a lack of pigs, but they also encounter something far more astonishing, far more frightening. Because what they encounter is a man, the seriously messed up demon-possessed man, now sitting, he's dressed, and he's in his right mind. Total transformation. And Jesus tells him to go and share what God has done for him. Go and share that God has had mercy on him. And in verse 19 it says that he goes to his family and wouldn't you just love to have been a fly on the wall as he walks through the door? Because life for that family must have been a nightmare up to this point. Now it was going to be refreshingly different because you see, a truly transformed life should cause a ripple effect. 
Others, particularly those closest to you, those nearest to you, should see and feel the difference of your encounters with Jesus. And if they don't, we need to ask questions. Verse 20 finishes. And all the people were amazed, which is understandable. But look at verse 17. Because although Jesus may be amazing... He's also unsettling. He's dangerous. He's risky. He's uncomfortable. Surely a a Jesus who can convert lives, particularly such screwed up lives, should be embraced, should be welcomed, should be urged to hang around. But actually Mark records how the people plead with Jesus, get out of here. Please leave our region, Jesus. See, the problem with Jesus is that he confronts and he uncovers mess. The light of the world exposes darkness. And we as human beings don't like that. And so we want to get rid of Jesus. Because we want to go back to our selfish, self-centered, materialistic, hedonistic living. The presence of Jesus is far too unsettling. It may be impressive. Having Jesus around is amazing. It is astonishing. But it's incredibly threatening. It's not how we like it or how we think we like it. Because Jesus unsettles the status quo. You see, it is or it should be genuinely risky to live with Jesus. The problem is, I think, we've domesticated Jesus. There is no risk in Jesus being around anymore, it seems. The final incident is actually two incidents. There's a story within a story in what is sometimes called a Mark and Sandwich. Mark does it again in chapter 11. We're initially introduced here to a distraught man of considerable importance, a synagogue ruler whose 12-year-old daughter, and as Luke would tell us, his only daughter is dying. And as a Jewish synagogue leader, Jairus may not have been a huge supporter of Jesus, but he has enough faith in Jesus to believe that if he would touch his daughter she would be healed and so Jesus accompanied by a large crowd go with Jairus and amongst the crowd is a woman with another 12 year old problem only this time it's not a kid it's a debilitating illness and although she has racked up a massive medical bill trying to get it sorted out the condition has been getting progressively worse But before we look at her story, let's pick up on Jarius again. Because while he's en route to his home, news filters through, it's too late. Give it all up, Jarius. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And yet Jesus turns around to the synagogue ruler and he says, Don't be afraid, just believe, which must have been easier said than done. And yet somehow, Jarius isn't afraid. Somehow, Darius does believe, and so he just keeps walking. And that's a challenge, isn't it? That whenever everyone and everything else tells you to pack it in, just give it up, just admit defeat, just walk away. It's a real challenge to choose to keep walking with Jesus. You see, true faith is never really proved in the sunlight and the cool breeze of the day. But it is tested in the darkest moments, whenever the winds of adversity are blowing in your face. 
For the disciples back in the lake, they decided Jesus didn't care. For Jairus walking this painful road home, he made the choice to maintain belief. Where are we this morning? Where are you and I? Jesus ditches the crowd. He only allows his inner circle of Peter, James and John plus Jarius to head for the house. And when he arrives, Jesus appears initially insensitive. Why all this commotion and wailing, he asks, which are not the most comforting words to offer people who are convinced they've just lost someone very special to them. Jesus then unbelievably says, the child isn't dead, she's asleep. And the only reaction that that solicits And the only reaction that now seems appropriate from everyone else is laughter. People still laugh at the claims of Jesus. But often they're forced to rethink their initial response. Jesus takes the little girl by the hand. She gets up, she walks around and as the laughter subsides, people are astounded. But then Jesus orders everyone to keep this whole thing under wraps. But why is the demonic in verse 20 allowed to go into ten cities, which is what the Decapolis means, and tell everybody, and yet these people are to tell no one? I have no idea. Back to the woman in the crowd. Her bleeding condition meant that she was considered unclean, and therefore that meant that she was unable to attend the synagogue. In short, This woman's illness affected her physically, it affected her financially, as I say, she'd racked up this massive medical bill, it says. But it also affected her socially, she was an outcast. But her faith was amazingly intact. And I find myself wondering, how did she maintain and nurture her faith whenever she was so isolated from others? And she thinks, if only I can touch the clothes of Jesus. I don't even have to touch Jesus. I just need to touch his clothes. And if I can do that, then I will be healed. And she does it. And she is. And immediately, and this is fascinating, Jesus realizes that power has gone out of him. And so he begins searching or scanning the crowd for who has taken it from him. And the woman whose bleeding has stopped and whose suffering has ended, throws herself at the feet of Jesus, scared out of her wits at this stage. And yet she hears Jesus say those powerful words, Daughter, your faith has healed you. And whenever life crowds in, with all its pressures, there is or there seems to be still room for us to creep up behind Jesus, if that's all we feel we can do, And reach out and touch him in that odd mixture of fear and faith that characterizes so much Christian discipleship. And as we finish up this morning, I've got nine questions for you to take away. But however you feel this morning, whether you feel small, whether you feel battered by the storms of life, whether you feel isolated, whether you feel self-destructive this morning, whether you feel sick, sad, curious or amazed, Keep reaching out to Jesus with that lethal concoction of fear and faith because when you do, your faith might just heal you. Nine questions. If you want me to email these to you, as I know many of you have asked me to do at the end of each of these services, that's great. Pick it up. How can I, how can we scatter seed more effectively? 
In God's word lies the fierce force of life. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? Why? What stormy situation are you going through at the moment where you need to know the presence and the care of God? Do you question God's care in your life? If yes or if no, why? What are you afraid of this morning? How are you currently responding to the challenges you face? What is your response to Jesus? Are you bowed in submission this morning to him? Or are you standing at a distance? What amazes you about Jesus or what threatens you about him? Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. What situation does that connect to in your life at the moment? As I say, if you want to pick these up, please drop me an email. Let's sing together as we close and then have coffee.